this morning. Well, actually, real quick, who loved Yaz and Mo? Yaz and Mo were amazing. I've had a few opportunities to get to hear them speak. I was unfortunately in Texas this last weekend, but I listened online. The highways in Texas might be the worst thing ever created. Um, Dallas, Texas. But I heard it was amazing. I heard they were incredible. I heard God moved in just such incredible ways. So I'm glad that you were all, you all got to be blessed by them because they are amazing people, amazing pastors, amazing missionaries. Guess what? What, Caden? We're in the last chapter of Galatians. We are officially in Galatians chapter 6, and as I was writing this message, we're going to be in in verses 1 through 5 this morning. I was reminded of a story of when I played basketball as a kid. When I was about 13, well, it's like, yes, basketball story. When I was about 13, 14 years old in eighth grade, I was playing for a select basketball team that was a feeder program from the high school. And at the end of the season, they decided, they're like, let's keep playing. Let's keep going. So what they did is they took all of the feeder programs and they picked the best basketball players from those teams to make a super team out of the county, out of what we call the Wesco, to make a team and compete in tournaments up and down the West Coast. I made the team, um, not because I was the best, but because I knew the coach. We all know somebody like that, right? Just made the team because he knows the coach. But we get this team together, and we have such high expectations for what this team is going to do. We think we're going to go in. We have all of the best players. We're going to go win tournaments. We're going to have a good time doing it. And guess what happened? We sucked. (laughs) But not because we didn't have talent, not because we weren't good enough, but because we hated each other. And I don't say that, I say that lightly. Nobody should hate anybody. We didn't like each other because think about it. It's all of your rivals all coming together on one team. And then all of a sudden, I want to be the best player, not them. So we all start fighting and competing for who's going to be the best player on the team. And we go two tournaments in and we have not won a single game. Because we're getting mad when somebody misses a shot. It's like, dude, you're supposed to shoot 100% every single game, right? Who's ever done that? Nobody. We expected it, though. If they pass the ball, if they turn the ball over, we start to get mad because they're not passing me the ball. And we go through a few tournaments. We lose a bunch of games. We start fighting within the team with each other, and everything looks like it's falling apart, and the coach finally sits us down, and he says, if you guys can't get your act together, this is going to fail, and this is never going to happen again. All of the people who are going to come behind you, who want to join this team, they're not going to have an opportunity because you guys can't figure it out. So he gives us, you know, that coming to Jesus moment conversation where you're like, I'm a horrible person, but I know I need to do better. And he gives us this whole motivational, encouraging speech, and and something clicked. We start practicing more. We start working more together as a team. The chemistry starts to get built within the team, and we actually start winning games. Amazing how that works, right? And then when we knew it all worked out for the better, we were playing the number two team in the state of Washington, and we're walking into this game, it's like, we're going to get destroyed. We're going to lose, it's going to be embarrassing, and somehow, some way, we get through this game, and we're down by like two points with two minutes to go. And we're like the unranked team, they're the number two team, and we get into this game, and we're playing good. 
we're working as a team, we're moving the ball, we're hitting our shots, we're finding the open player. And the last 30 seconds comes around and it just didn't work out in our favor, but we left that game with our heads held high because we worked together as a team. Even though we lost at this point, we weren't looking at each other, blaming somebody, you could have been better, you could have done this, you could have done that. We were actually proud with how well we worked together as a team. We began to win as a team, and we began to even lose as a team, fail as a team. And I tell that story because what we see here in chapter 6 is a church that's having a hard time being a team. They're kind of grumbling within, they're, 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 they're pointing fingers, they're pointing blame, and, and Paul's kind of addressing the church like my first version of that basketball team. They're all over the place. They can't work together, they can't be together. They are just so tripped up over trying to be better than the other person. So the people in the church that Paul is addressing right now, they almost saw themselves as like a better Christian. Right, you know, like the professional Christians? Like there's such thing, right? No. So they're kind of arguing with each other. They're pointing blame. And whether we want to admit it or not, we can all find ourselves trapped in this mindset. And we can all relate to this. If we see another Christian doing something wrong, we all of a sudden feel smug or even high and mighty sometimes, like, I didn't do that, but look at what they're doing. We begin to get in this mindset, and it's not how we're supposed to act as believers. It's not how we're supposed to act as Christians, because in that attitude and in that mindset, we begin to write people off for their struggles and for their behavior, which is so backwards on how the church is supposed to come around people and support them and love them and restore them. But oftentimes, and I'm going to be honest with you, this morning, this is a message directed at the church body. This is a message that Paul is looking at the church in Galatia and he's saying we have to do better. We have to be better for each other. We have to love each other better. We just have to be better, especially to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Our fellow believers, our first thoughts usually aren't grace and reconciliation. Our first thoughts tend to be judgment and condemnation. And Paul is going to look at the church in Galatia. He's going he's to write to the church in Galatia. He's going to write to us how we're supposed to go about walking with our fellow believers, walking with one another. And in Galatians 6, verses 1 through 2, he says this. He says, Dear brothers and sisters, If another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly, other translations say you who are spiritual, should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Verse 2 says, share each other's burdens and in this way obey the law of Christ. Point number one, if you're taking notes, is be a burden bearer. Be a burden bearer. The people... I want to be clear. The people that Paul is talking about here are not the people that we talked about a few weeks ago. These aren't people who are willfully following the flesh. They're not willfully following their sinful nature. These are people who are not just sinning to sin because they want to sin. Paul is talking about people who are Jesus followers, but they're caught in sin. They're tangled in sin. 
some by their own doing, some not, but they're kind of trapped and they're uncomfortable, but they're looking for a way out. Like they want out of it. They know it's not how they're supposed to be living and they want out of it. Maybe they made a bad choice and sinned, but they feel convicted. Maybe the, the Judaizers, like we've been talking about, the, the people who had tried to infiltrate the church, maybe they had led them astray and they felt like they weren't good enough because they couldn't meet the mark of being a Christian. Like there's a mark, right? Basically, these people that Paul is talking about are believers who have sinned, who have messed up, but they feel guilty for whatever they have done and they want help. And Paul knows that if a believer is left out there with no one, if they're dismissed or they're isolated by the church and the church body, it can only lead to more disaster. As Christians, Paul is saying we're called to gently restore our brothers and sisters back to the right path. Gently. But we're not always that good at that. A lot of the time we fall short when it comes to this specific topic, when it comes to, to, to restoring believers back to the right path. I know I was vulnerable a couple of weeks ago, and, and I kind of gave you a little bit of insight into my personality and how I kind of, my brain turns, and when somebody does something wrong to me or somebody cuts or does something, I'll say does something wrong to me, my initial reaction is to say, I'm done with you. You've hurt me, you've caused me pain, you've caused my family pain. I don't want anything to do with you. But within the church and within how we are, that can't be how we act. It can't be. When Paul says, gently restore one another, it's not like a maybe you should gently restore one another. It's like we have to be better at restoring one another back into the body because that's where healing takes place. There's a quote by Gandhi. Some of you have maybe heard it. He says, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And how true can that be even within the body of the church? Believer to believer. How instead of loving people who fall short, we judge people who fall short. Like, oh man, I can't believe that person did that. I can't believe that person sinned. How dare they do that? Don't hang out with that, any, that person anymore because, you know, they're not living like Jesus would live right now. They had an affair. They lied. They said a bad word. They relapsed. They had too much to drink. They spoke to their spouse or their kids in a way that they shouldn't be speaking to their spouse or their kids. They keep wasting their money on unrighteous things. And this and this and this. And this, it's really easy to point the finger. But what we need to know, and I want to I be very clear. I'm not calling anyone out. I'm not calling anyone out to bring shame or condemnation, but church, hear me. We have to do better when a brother or sister stumbles. We have to. We are not perfect by any means. We are all susceptible to messing up and we are all susceptible to sinning. But Jesus would have never looked at any of these people and say the things that we often think. Jesus never left people hurting in their sin. He led people to transformation out of their sin. There's a story in the Gospel of John of Jesus interacting with one, the Pharisees, and two, a woman caught in adultery and 
John chapter 8, starting in verse 4, it says, Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and he wrote something in the dust with his finger. What's he writing in the dust? They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and he said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and he wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only, was, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? She said, no, Lord. Jesus looked at her, and I think this is so powerful. He said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. What Jesus said to the Pharisees is exactly what we need to ask ourselves the next time we look at a Christian, a fellow believer who sinned, and our immediate reaction is to judge or to shame. We need to ask ourselves, you who has no sin, cast the first stone. This is what Paul means when he says, you who are godly should gently and humbly restore that person to the right path. We see the sin, we acknowledge the sin, but we don't leave them in the sin. We walk with them gently and humbly, trying to restore them back to the right path that Jesus has laid out for them. And I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. Dealing with with hurt and pain and brokenness is never easy. I remember a few years ago, one of my good friends... um, When I came to the church, there were a few people who took me under their wing. They saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. They helped me learn what it means to follow Jesus. They helped me learn what it means to to be in ministry. I was doing ministry with this person. And I remember one day we got the news that this person had, had been found out to be in some deep sin. And in my head, I'm thinking, this is the guy who's been with me. He took me under his wing. He, he supported me. He's pastored me. He's led me. How could he do that to me? And I'm sitting there, and I'm like, it can't be real. It can't be real. It was real. And, and my, my immediate emotions and, and what I was feeling, I'm, I feel angry. How dare he? I feel betrayed. Why would he do that? And I'm sitting in all of my emotion, and and my first thoughts are not good. I judged him. I judged the situation. And I'm owning with you that reality because it's so easy to judge somebody who's caught in sin. And, of course, we're going to have these initial thoughts, and we're going to have these feelings, and it's okay to feel sad, and it's okay to feel hurt and angry, but we can't stay there. We can't stay in those, those hurt, hurting feelings. We have to move towards a place of empathy for the person who has fallen short. I remember I tried to go talk to him pretty quickly after, and I was like, I can't talk to you yet. I'm just not there yet. But about six to eight months went by, and, and I went over to his house, and I sat across from him on the couch, and he said, Caden, can you forgive me? 
And I looked at him and said, yes, I can forgive you because Jesus forgave you. And it was a moment that was, it shattered me. But that's how you restore somebody gently and humbly. It's not going to happen quick. It's not going to be easy. But you have to get to that place where you can look at somebody who you feel deeply hurt you and betrayed you and you can say, I forgive you. We must move towards extending grace, towards reconciliation, toward understanding, toward bearing the burden of others. We have to be able to move towards that. The Pharisees could not even fathom bearing this woman's burden because they had become so stuck in judgment and legalism. They were willing to stone her to death rather than restore her to life. The legalist is not interested in bearing burdens. Instead, they add burdens to others. I could have sat across from my friend and pointed out all the wrong that he had done, but that wouldn't be helpful. What was helpful is to get him to a place of restoration. But how often do we think of throwing stones rather than fronting love? How often do we think of when we see somebody we know sin, when we see somebody in the church sin, we're like, well, shame on them. Instead of saying, I love you, how can I help you? This was the sin of of the Pharisees in Jesus' day. They were legalistic in nature, and the legalist is always harder on other people than they are on themselves. But the spirit-led Christian demands more of himself than he does others so that he might be able to help others. So really what Paul is trying to communicate in this first part of the chapter is the difference of, of how a legalist believer responds to brothers and sisters caught in sin and the way a believer keeping in step with the Spirit responds to sin. The Spirit-led believer should always seek to restore the person in love. The word restore here means to mend as a net or to restore as a broken bone. If anyone in the room has ever had a broken bone, we know how painful that bone can be to set back into place, right? Anybody had a broken bone? It's not fun. I haven't had a broken bone that I've had to set, but it doesn't look fun. Yeah, no. When one of our brothers or sisters in Christ is caught or stuck in sin, they are like a broken bone in the church body that needs to be gently set and restored back into place so healing can happen. And we know like a bone set in a cast to heal, the process does not happen overnight. The process takes time. It takes patience. It takes understanding that we can't do a lot with this arm anymore because it just snapped in half. We have to be willing to take the time that it's gonna take to help that person get back to a place of restoration. We as spirit-led Christians who are living in the liberty of grace will seek to help our sinning brothers and sisters because, like we talked about a few weeks ago, we want to bear the fruits of the Spirit. We want to show people love and kindness. We want to show people these things because Christ showed these things to us. Paul is urging us in this passage to be a people, to be a church who is tender and gentle when we restore one another and bear one another's burdens. God wants us to be ready to heal one another, not to judge one another. 
to see the person as a child of God, not somebody who is less than because they messed up. Because Paul would have known while writing this that we all fall short of the glory of God. All of us. It takes a great deal of love and courage to approach a sinning brother or sister to seek help and restoration for them. It does. It's hard. But it's worth it. Paul goes on to say in verses 3 through 5, buckle up. If you think you are too important to help someone, you are only fooling yourself. You are not that important. Pay careful attention to your own work, for then you will get the satisfaction of a job well done, and you won't need to compare yourself to anyone else, for we are each responsible for our own conduct. Point number two is this, is we are all equal at the foot of the cross. We are all equal at the foot of the cross. There aren't accolades that make you a better Christian. There's not this title that you can get that says, I'm a professional Christian all of a sudden, right? Somebody asked me when we got ordained, they're like, what difference does that make? I'm like, super reverend? I don't know. Totally joking, totally joking. But there isn't any kind of accolade or thing that you can get that makes you better than somebody else when it comes to the family of God. And in that, a burden-bearing heart is a gentle heart. But that gentleness partly comes from yet another characteristic that we read about here. Verse 3, it says, The burden-bearing heart is honest about its own condition. Verse 3 says, If you think you are too important to help someone, you are only fooling yourself. You are not that important. Notice the self-deception that Paul is addressing here. It's the belief that I am something. It's the belief that I am something. But what does Paul mean by this expression? Clearly, the kind of something such a person believes himself or herself to be is the kind of something that doesn't bear the burdens of those struggling with sin. Being such a something must lead a person to believe that some things are beneath them. Maybe that such people are too unrighteous for, for righteous people like themselves to deal with, right? Who's ever been there? Like, oh, I could never be caught dead hanging out with that person. But why? However this self-deception works out, Paul wants to set the record straight. When it comes to that kind of something, we have to know that we're really nothing. None of us are righteous in all we do. None of us better than the other. None of us are invulnerable to sin's attacks on us. None of us. Everybody look to your neighbor and say, none of us. When we talk about being made righteous, we are not righteous because of how awesome we are. We aren't. We're not righteous because of how awesome we think we are or the amazing things that we do or the people that we pray for or the things that we do. We are only made righteous through the salvation and the blood of Jesus. That's it. Through his death, his resurrection, through what he has done for us is how we're made righteous. Nothing that we did, and it's always going to be about what he's done. A burden-bearing heart, a heart that is ready with gentleness to help shoulder the weight of a brother or sister's struggle, that heart is one humbled by its own nothingness because it knows that we're sinners. And if you're tempted to 
ignore, gossip about, or judge those who are struggling with sin, you better carefully consider whether or not you wrongly think that you are something. Another way of saying that would be carefully consider whether or not we think we're better than the person sitting next to us. And that can be a hard pill to swallow sometimes. Because we're all human, we're all broken, and oftentimes we can look over there and we can be like, well, I'm better than that. But Paul continues, and he goes on to elaborate this idea in verses 4 and 5, that a burden-bearing heart is aware of its spiritual responsibilities. A burden-bearing heart pays attention to their own state of being, does not compare, and takes responsibility for their own conduct. The kind of heart that Paul is writing about in these verses is suffering from the same self-deception that's mentioned in verse 3. But in verse 4, we see the roots of that self-deception are being fed by the dangerous soil of comparing ourselves to others. If I am consumed with a sense of self-righteousness, then the failures of others will simply feed my self-deception. Feeding our egos. We might say or think to ourselves, man, it's awful what happened to Marty. I'm so glad I'm not in Marty's shoes, though. We compare ourselves to him. It's like, well, I'm doing good, but Marty's over there. We don't know what Marty's doing, but I'm okay, right? We begin to compare ourselves, and if we can look better than somebody else, we feel better about our own sin. So what should we do instead? Paul tells us in verse 4, let each one of you test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. The word Paul uses here for boast is not always a bad word. It can oftentimes be translated into rejoice in. So Paul is saying if you want to rejoice in where you're at spiritually, do that based on a careful examination of your faith and your practice, and do not rejoice in where you're you're at spiritually based on comparisons or judgments of others. It's the moment we start thinking that we're better than people is where we actually start falling ourselves. So as we wrap up today, my hope in this message was not to be a message that was condemning, but convicting. I hope, my hope is that we feel challenged and we feel encouraged by the Holy Spirit to be better in how we come alongside each other. Pastor John says it all the time, this is a family. We do life together, we live together, we're around each other. So I think we should treat each other good more out of the time than not, amen? And if we walk away with anything, remember that one, we are in this together, meant to bear the burdens of others. And two, we need to check our hearts if we think we're above sin. When we played together on that basketball team, we were successful as a team. We were successful when we worked together, moved the ball together, and played as a team. We stopped comparing, we stopped blaming, we stopped trying to be better than the teammate next to us. Everybody benefited and everybody won. That's the kingdom. The gospel is not just about you and Jesus, it's about us and Jesus, following Jesus together and being the church to others. Whenever we come to church, it can't be about who's better and who's worse. It can't. We're in this together. We're following Jesus together. We're doing life together. 
It's not a competition. It's not a comparison. We're meant to do this together. None of us are perfect. And of course, there's always going to be room to grow. So as we leave today, I want you to do something. I want you to close your eyes and I want you to bow your heads. And in your own heart, I want you to hold a mirror up to yourself. And I'm going to ask a few questions. And if you relate to that, maybe you relate to that. Have we been like the Pharisees? Have we been somebody who who is constantly looking around and saying, well, they're breaking the rules, they're sinning. And you're casting judgment and condemnation on them, on those people. Are you being the person who's willing to throw a stone rather than front love? Have we been on the opposite of burden bearers, thinking to ourselves when somebody falls, oh, well, they should have known better. Have you been in that posture of thinking, oh, I'm so sorry for them, but that's them and I'm not in their shoes, so I'm just going to keep following Jesus and not worry about that person? Or maybe thirdly, you are the person who's been caught in that web of sin, not wanting to be there, but somehow you found yourself in this position and you just need your church to come alongside you and help you bear those burdens, help you walk back towards a path of restoration, back to a path of reconciliation, back to a path where your church loves you and you see Jesus clearly again. I don't know where you're at, and I'm not going to ask you where you're at. I'm simply just going to pray for us as a church to hear the Lord, to follow the Lord, and if he's convicted you in any kind of way, to ask for help from the people who ask for help, one, from Jesus, but also the people who are sitting around you who I know want to help you. So, Lord, we we come before you humbly and we say thank you that you're a God who doesn't push us aside when we sin, but you're a God who gently restores us back to the right path. Lord, we thank you that no matter the mistakes we can make, no matter the the times we come up short, you're still there to say, I'm with you and I'm going to keep walking with you. And Lord, I just pray for, for those of us in the room who've maybe had hardened hearts, who've seen sin and judged sin and, and shamed sin, Lord. I pray that you would soften our hearts right now and you would begin to see people not for their sin, but for who you see them as, Jesus, as children of God, trying to walk back to the right path. Lord, help us be humble, help us be gentle. And Lord, I pray for the people right now who are caught in sin. They haven't known whether they go left or they go right, and they've kind of been lost, and and they feel guilty, and they feel convicted. But Lord, today is the day where they boldly and courageously step out, and they say, I have a church who's behind me, and I need their help. So Lord, would you begin to stir the hearts of those of us who who are maybe caught in sin and we just need help, whether that be through prayer, whether that be through relationship, whether that be just a cup of coffee and a good conversation. Lord, I pray that you would begin to point people to the right people to help restore them back to the right path, gently and humbly. Lord, we trust you, we worship you, and it's in your mighty name that we pray. Amen. Amen.